Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode four of Thinking in the Midst, a podcast about philosophy and education. I'm Derek Gottlieb, along with Kara Furman, and today we're talking about the very broad subject of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. In our last episode, of course, we spoke with Ariana Gonzalez-Stokas, who elaborated the colonial logic of the very idea of diversity at the historical and institutional levels. In this episode, we're joined by two philosophers focusing on ableism and disability studies on the one hand, and on structural and ideological impediments to students' experience of belonging in schools on the other. As always, I'll ask our guests to introduce themselves, and then I'll throw it to Kara to get us into the episode. All right, hello and uh, welcome. We are so glad to have you here today. Would you mind uh, uh, introducing yourselves uh, to our listening audience? Uh, Ashley, would you like to start? Sure. Um, my name is Ashley Taylor, and I am an associate professor of educational studies at Colgate University, which is in central New York State. Thank you. And my name is Lana Parker, and I'm an assistant professor of education here at the University of Windsor in Canada. Excellent. Thank you so much. It's really great having you on the show. Hi. Thank you. So... We are broadly talking today about a acronym, DEIB, which stands for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging. And we'd like you to speak to how you define what the issues are in relation to this concept. Why do you think it matters um, to be thinking about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging broadly defined? And if you have an anecdote that can help us understand how you're entering into this conversation, that would be that would be very helpful. And Ashley, you want to start us off? Sure. Um, <clears throat> so I guess uh, I come into this from my work in disability studies and disability studies in education, uh, and I am interested in how. Uh, I'm basically, I'm interested in ableism more so, um, and how ableism especially impacts people who are understood as, uh, through the lenses of cognitive and uh, mental deficiency. So, um, that's kind of the background, uh, of my work kind of stems from work that I did before going to grad school. Uh, as a caregiver for people labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And uh, one of the things that kind of got me thinking that I should study this is that I was seeing how the kinds of institutional environments that the people in my care were living in um, structured them as, as not fully knowers and not fully agents um, in our relationship. And uh, I thought that that was not good. <laughs> um, and so I was interested in studying more about how that comes to be. And that's kind of been the, the framework of my work um, is to understand how uh, people labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities are understood as non-knowers and how our different epistemological frameworks for understanding disability frame people labeled um, with disabilities in that way. Ashley, can you, thank you. Can you very pre briefly just define what you mean by 
ableism and also epistemology because those are both really important sure words yeah sure good that's great it's helpful to be reminded to define your terms um so ableism i use ableism to mean many different things um not only uh one of the ways that we often think about ableism is is in terms of discrimination so the way that people are discriminated against um in employment and um in schooling for sure um, but I actually mean it more broadly to think about structures. So structures um, that uh, sustain able-minded people or people who are seen as having able minds um, as not cognitively, mentally um, disabled uh, and how those structures uh, support able-minded people at the expense of people who are regarded as, um, as mentally or cognitively or intellectually disabled. Um, in terms of <laughs> epistemic frames, so um, I, when I say this to my students, I say epistemic is just a fancy way of saying knowing, which of course philosophers would probably hate. But uh, basically what I mean by that is the way that our ways of knowing and understanding um, disability, so our frameworks for understanding disability, um, shape the way that we, uh, we make sense of uh, disabled people, the way that people are encountered um, in, in society broadly, in schooling in particular. Um, and, I also, and I also use um, epistemology and epistemic frames to think about how people are positioned or not as knowers, um, which is to say people who can make meaning, who can come to conceptualize things, who can learn. Thank you so much, Ashley, for those rich follow-up descriptions. Lana, can you chime in on how your research enters into this broader topic? Sure, thank you. Uh, well, I was a classroom teacher and an administrator in the public education system here in Canada for uh, about a decade and a half. And um, in that time, I came to witness uh, how systems and structures are set up in particular ways that either negate or value people's sense of self-worth uh, and personhood and how these things come to affect over time whether or not people feel that they can be successful or belong in a space. And increasingly, one of the things I think that I observed was the emergence of a kind of coherence around why people tend to be excluded and how they tend to be uh, excluded. And that really um, emerged in the face of neoliberalism kind of shaping educational discourse more and more uh, in the time that I was working in the K-12 system. So sort of uh, in hidden ways, uh, these ideas of what constitutes success what merit study, uh, who could be included uh, in definitions of success, what constitutes a knower, to Ashley's earlier point. Uh, not only were those things sort of abstract, but I, I think that I start to see through my analysis that they are being shaped in particular ways according to economic values. And so my work really focuses on how it is we can maybe recover some other underpinning or ethic of responsibility to ground how it is we make meaning together and consider who has value, whether it is in a K-12 system or in any other kind of structure. Thanks very much for that. 
uh, for both of you. That's all uh, fascinating. The, the way that I want to ask this uh, next question uh, is a little bit difficult because you've, you've already talked about it to a certain degree. Um, these are the places that you study. What substantive arguments or findings do you find yourself making? What kind of advocacy do you do uh, in relation to uh, the fields of study that you engage in? Uh, Lana, do you want to start this time? Sure. So, uh, sorry, I think maybe I'll break that down into two parts because you were asking about, you know, sort of what I'm finding and then, you know, maybe the second piece is the question of advocacy. Mm -hmm. And um, it's interesting because I think that I came to understand my scholarship as advocacy maybe a little later (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, as I started to recognize, you know, the importance of leveraging alternatives, uh, offering perspectives outside of sort of the, what I'm going to call like the neoliberal hegemony. Uh, so I, I, I do see my work as, as sort of advocacy now because um, increasingly I feel that I'm speaking back to a totality. And so um, what, it, what it is, I think that um, grounds my work first and foremost is the sense that what we have come to value in the last 50 years increasingly is this form of neoliberal capitalism where uh, human life is judged in its worth according to not simply traditional expressions of mastery of knowledge, for example, or scientific renderings of what constitutes a good life or, you know, you know, sort of the, like the early philosophical questions, but rather sort of, um, more materially with how much we can earn and how much capital we can accrue over our lifetime. And so what I try to do in the philosophy that I employ, whether it's Levinas or Heidegger or Hannah Arendt is to think about ways that interrupt that totalizing neoliberal discourse uh, that suggests different kinds of um, ontological underpinnings or epistemological sort of considerations that would allow us to question um, the sort of taken-for-granted relationship between value and economics. Um, you know, something that has come to the fore, I think, in the pandemic, you know, what is the value of a life? And I think that a lot of that has been shaped um, by, can you work? Mm-hmm. The question of whether or not you can be a quote unquote productive member of society. And so I can come back to the second question of advocacy um, if you want now, or I can, uh, you know, take a take a moment. Well, I'd, I'd love to hear about the, the advocacy uh, piece as well. I just want to check that but when when you're talking about, I, I just, I'm taking this job from Kara, whose job <laughs> it always is, but by neoliberal hegemony, I'm understanding in your answer to mean both the thing that you said about uh, the attachment of value to the capacity to work and the material, essentially a human capital theory view of education and the hegemonic part of that is it's taken for grantedness is is the way that you just uh described is that about right yes thank you uh yeah so i know it can be um i'm using it in shorthand in kind of Mm -hmm. a lazy way but 
essentially, yes, you know, the, um, the facets of uh, neoliberal hegemony that I think are useful to point out here is the correlation between the value of a life and the economic underpinning, a strong sense of individualism uh, versus the collective, uh, a determination of um, the rituals and traditions of meritocracy, uh, the uh, sort of accepted premise of social mobility and the function that that holds um, in education. I mean, there's just so many, mm-hmm. but, you know, th- that's sort of like a little collection of, of characteristics. And uh, because it is no longer simply, uh, you know, this neoliberal discourse is no longer simply confined to uh, the language of business, but also the language of governance and government, uh, how we are in our day-to-day lives, our familial relationships in education, in healthcare, et cetera, I conceptualize it now as this sort of totalizing force mm-hmm. that sort of concentrates us into this narrative. Excellent. Uh, thank you for that. So the advocacy piece, could you say both about like what it is that you do and also how you came to sort of understand the connection between that advocacy work and the more sort of purely intellectual or academic way of seeing your work? Well, I found myself in informal advocacy positions a lot. I think maybe in my role as a K-12 teacher at the time and then as a scholar, I'd be sitting around a lot of dinner tables or meeting with friends that I've known since childhood. And I would notice trends in the conversation we would have about education. Uh, you know, I would have my, my friends ask me, well, Lana, I, you know, so-and-so is getting ready to go to kindergarten. Do you know of any good schools? And the good schools question, <laughs> I think it was the good schools question that really served as the catalyst for me realizing uh, that that itself became a sort of sh- shorthand in the day-to-day conversation for a whole bunch of exclusive understandings of who belongs in a good school and what constitutes a good school. And so I came to advocacy because I started plugging my scholarship and my research into that question of what is it, what is a good school? I would ask them in return. And so then I started to think about how the answer to that question can be thematized and mobilized across a great many conversations. So whether I'm doing empirical research where I'm studying, uh, you know, multiliteracies, literacies, mis- and disinformation in the schools and working with um, the Ministry of Education or with local school boards, or whether I'm, uh, you know, giving a talk about um, what the distinctions are between um, migrant and refugee children experiences coming into new school systems, I began to see that I could start to poke holes or interrupt the taken for grantedness by offering alternative perspectives. And generally, those alternative perspectives would be rooted in, you know, what it means uh, to be responsible for one another or, uh, you know, even, for example, like a, a Heideggerian understanding of care as like the basic sort of premise for what we do with the finitude of our lives from the time that we start and the time that we have. So 
Uh, I don't know if that really answered the question, but I think, you know, it was that question. What's a good school? Thank you. That's that's excellent. It absolutely answered the question. Ashley, same thing. Yeah, <clears throat> it absolutely. And I think that it's clear from your response, Lana, that your advocacy is both sort of really explicit and also um, structured into the work that you do. And I think that's, I mean, that resonates for me because I, I try to think about the two things together and it's, it's a bit of a dance in my work. Um, so I guess as an example, I can kind of answer the question about the arguments I'm interested in by talking about, I mean, I sort of see myself doing like a, like a broad sort of structural um kind of broad structural work and also kind of on the ground um, work in the classroom. And I see those things as linked. And so the broader structural work is to think about and understand, and I guess maybe expose um, like pervasive systems of, of, of able-mindedness. And by that, I mean a kind of ableism that has to do with um, privileging and expecting and promoting um, uh, able-minded ways of knowing and being. So um, it's complicated because in learning, we're always going for, um, learning is always kind of oriented towards able-mindedness, right? It's oriented towards um, to improving minds in certain ways, right? Um, but I think we also privilege uh, ways of knowing, being, and doing that support people who think uh, reason um, process information, et cetera, in very, um, in ways considered normal in ways that don't always work for folks who can, who, who, uh, might call themselves neurodivergent, et cetera. So, um, so that kind of question is a broad one in my work. And I, I've kind of investigated how able-mindedness as a concept has emerged as a racialized concept. And that's kind of a really important, um, lens that I, um, am interested in. Uh, because I think it helps us to make sense of the concept um, more broadly and also the ways that especially um, uh, kids of color in schools are positioned as non-knowers um, through frameworks of disability, even when they themselves aren't, aren't labeled with disabilities. And I think that's a really important lens to take that disability studies can offer. And of course, there are many people working on that. Um, and then the other thing that I am interested in is how I can uh, help my students in my classrooms and also how I can use my classrooms as spaces that interrupt that system of able-mindedness. So, for example, I've, I've worked to offer and I haven't in the past few years because of the, unfortunately because of the pandemic um, hasn't been possible, but a class um, in which I partner with a, a local um, post-secondary program uh, that uh, teaches um, students labeled with intellectual disabilities and developmental disabilities. And they come to my class at Colgate uh, and take classes with um, the students who enrolled at Colgate. And the reason I see this as an interruption is because people with intellectual disabilities, intellectually disabled people have just not been um, historically granted access to the university. Um, that is changing in really, really important ways. There are some people doing really, really awesome in similar kinds of structural work at other schools, um, much bigger than what I'm doing. But because of the nature of the place I'm at, this is the way I can kind of do that small advocacy work. Um, and I see it as really important in um, kind of shifting people's attention to what can happen in a classroom space where uh, where we don't presume um, able mindedness in the ways that um, 
what we traditionally do. So I guess that's also how I see my advocacy emerge is through uh, that kind of work. Thank you. That's awesome. When I hear both of you talking, I hear you kind of moving and calibrating between your work in the field or in the undergraduate classroom or in the um, K-12 school setting and then philosophy. And it seems to me like a back and forth is constantly going on in the ways in which you're thinking about structures and then you're thinking about specific words and you're moving around sort of between the real and the ideal in some ways or the real and the ideas. Can you speak a little bit to why it matters to you as you enter into this advocacy in these different places that you are a philosopher or that's one of the hats that you wear? I didn't want to jump in, but um, that question is very exciting. Um, so I, I mean, I, here's one way in which I think it matters is that, um, is that I think like philosophy, like theory more generally. And I also, I, I'm, I'm, sort of see myself doing feminist disability studies scholarship, which is to say that I'm interested in how feminist theory bears on these questions as well. Um, I think that it offers the potential to think ideally to offset some of the tendencies that come from thinking non-ideally. So when I talk to my students about like ideal and non-ideal theory, like I'm, I'm really interested in how ideal, how I, I, we can think about ways, I don't even like this, phrase ideal theory, but how we can think about reimagining um, the way things are, right? And so philosophical questions orient us towards those um, reimaginings because uh, I've seen philosophical questions as opening up space where space is usually closed off. So questions for me like um, asking like, well, well, how do you conceptualize a knower, right? And I mean, this is a sort of throwback to the last podcast, but I was listening to um, Joy and Stephanie talk about this question too. Like, how do you open up space for asking that question of like, what, what, what is a no? Or what are you presuming about that person's capabilities? What does it mean to know? Things like that. Um, to me, those are, those are questions that um, help, help our, our students, help readers shift away from the descriptive, right, to the normative and to asking those kinds of normative questions, those ethical questions that open up, um, uh, open up space. And, and to go back to the last comment, I mean, I was listening to Lana describe, you know, the, the kinds of ways that people, um, how the pandemic shifted, has, has shifted, maybe shifted is not the right word, underscored the devaluation, right? Um, the existing devaluation. Um, I mean, I, I was watching as, you know, disabled people were just being described as, as basically disposable, right? And, and as someone who is able-bodied, I watched from a very different perspective, able-minded, able-bodied. But um, that, that kind of like um, watching that happen, right? We need to be asking these questions about like, what is it that we are valuing in terms of people's productivity, in terms of people's ways of knowing, in terms of the kinds of things that people can offer. So um, it's a great, it's very exciting work to do that. Lana? Yeah, I mean, thanks, Ashley. I think that's lovely. You know, I know you didn't like the term ideal theory, but I think um, what you eliminated for me was how bridging uh, or bringing a philosophical lens allows for the reimagining of potentials that maybe are lying dormant or that are buried in the existing sort of detritus of day to day. And I'm thinking specifically here of, you know, a teacher ed classroom, uh, when 
we so we do something called um making praxis at the end of almost all of the classes that I teach where the students have come back from doing their practicum in the schools and we try to pick up on stories or scenarios that they had out in the field, you know, the real world for them. And we try to analyze them by bringing them back to some sort of theoretical framework or philosophical underpinning and try to figure out, you know, could this have gone differently if, um, or interrupt some of the taken for grantedness that underpins, I think, our reflexive actions in the day to day. And so specifically, you know, when I think about um, what our students sometimes, or maybe not even just students, um, but what we lose when we aren't aware of the both historical possibilities and the yet-to-be possibilities, I think that's what the philosophical lens permits. Um, you know, I mean, a small a small example is uh, that we have had standardized testing in our K-12 system in Ontario for uh, almost three decades now. Um, but it isn't taken for granted that that should be the case. Uh, the students or teacher candidates that I work with now cannot conceptualize of an education system without that reality of standardized testing. And so you know, I think what we can do with philosophy sometimes is to start with a different ideal and to work backwards to problematize what we have in here and now. This is this is something that, that Lana was saying just reminded me that this is a, maybe a really small example, but I feel like it might be a useful one for some listeners that I often am kind of surprised at how my students aren't don't understand a difference between differences in how we define equality. So like, I think that they understand some differences around like equality and equity um, because they've heard those terms before, but I'm not always clear on whether or not they can really flesh that out. And I spend a fair amount of time, especially in my philosophy of education class, but also in my, in my inclusive education class, getting them to understand what it means, why equality can be achieved by treating people differently, because that's just so outside of many of their frameworks of understanding, even though I think if once you start talking about it, they see examples of it everywhere. But I think that that kind of intervention just in a way of thinking, right, that philosophers can offer is I mean, not you, maybe not uniquely philosophers, but I think we do it really well, <laughs> um, right, can can kind of like just just make some dent in the assumptions about how education has to look to be just. That's really fascinating. I'm, Kara, I'm, I just need to jump in here real quickly. What, what you just said, uh, Ashley, really reminds me of an experience that I had pretty recently. I was, uh, I, I lived in Puerto Rico for two years. Uh, I followed my uh, now wife there who was doing a, a dental residency. And I, I was describing this experience to uh, like a, a, an acquaintance, somebody I know a little bit, but not really well. And I was talking about how, how things worked differently there in order to like, if you wanted to take the ferry from uh, the main island to Vieques, you could like, you can't buy tickets in advance. You have to buy tickets at the window. There's a procedure for how you buy these tickets, but 
that procedure entirely depends on who's at the window. And so like some people will be like, no, you, of course you can buy a ticket for a ferry that leaves in seven hours. And other people will only sell you a ticket for the uh, ferry that leaves in a second. And I was like, it took me a long time to adjust to a different way of sort of uh, navigating the world in which, um, in which these differences were meaningful in a way that they hadn't been in a way that I like what I was used to. And this acquaintance of mine was like, well, that just sounds like injustice. And I was like, that's I, I was, I was sort of floored by that. I was like, oh yeah, I guess that like when you come from like a single place where things work in a single way, you can become inured to the fact that something like procedural fairness or can conceal all kinds of manners of injustice. And you start to think of justice in this one way and stop thinking about the ways that it, whatever. So I just want, like, that was very exciting, that, that comment that you made, that's all. Yeah, that, no, that's helpful. I mean, I, I think it, it actually illustrates two things we've talked about. One is like epistemological frames, mm -hmm. right? Like sort of like what framework of cultural understanding are you coming in with? And then it also illustrates this point that you just made about procedural fairness and how procedural fairness, uh, I'm, I'm really interested in procedural fairness, but I think we can also kind of, um, weaponize that sometimes in ways that, um, uh, don't work for everyone. So, well, which is to say that aren't actually procedurally fair. <laughs> <laughs> it's really interesting to hear this conversation unfold because one of the questions that I think we've been asking with this podcast is sort of what are philosophers? What do they do? What do they have to offer to these issues of action? And I'm hearing this um, ability to deliberate about terms. Um, and I'm also hearing this very other, very different way of thinking about philosophy, which is this capacity to, to dream, to think about space differently, to change space because you're changing the ideas and that that comes back to deliberating about words so that there's this kind of synergy about what it is that we actually do and why it's helpful. Um, I'm going to pivot us to the next question. Um, if that works for you, Derek, and just, I guess, as we think about structures with both of, both of you have spoken about quite a bit, what are the implications of your work for policymakers, for thinking about the structures overall? What kind of space, if you could dream, um, my colleague Patty Bailey says in an environment planning class, dream big to the students. Don't think about money yet. Imagine what it should be, and then we'll talk about how you're going to get a grant to cover it. Um, how would you dream big based on your research to, to change things to make them more um, fair, equitable? What a lovely question. Uh, so... Boy, you know, I don't know if anyone's ever offered me carte blanche to imagine that before. So I'm feeling excited and also maybe a, a little nervous. But, you know, I think that um, the idea of of working, of, of, of applying philosophical thinking to policy is difficult work. It feels like... Uh, discursive war of attrition sometimes, but I do think that when we as philosophers bring our ideas to the table, whether it's a curriculum revision, for example, uh, that I was just working on, or whether it's a discussion of 
reframing um, a the wording of an EDI policy, which is also something I was recently working on. Uh, I think what happens is that there there's a possibility for the introduction of an analytical framework, potentially, that is not transparent to people who are not maybe applying that framework or, or working with it. And so by that, I mean, you know, sometimes I think people who are working in policies or who who are working with policies or who inherit uh, tradition in institutions don't have good uh, analytical or critical tools to take those things apart to see what has sort of become sedimented or reified. And so I think that sometimes by applying a new philosophical framework or sequence of ways of thinking about something, it exposes uh, it exposes areas that have been covered over in the past. It it maybe unearths the root of why a policy began a certain way, but why it needs to be revisioned for now. Uh, you know, I think when I orient my work, I try to orient it as you know, the, uh, again, kind of the answer to that, what is a good school? And I think that our application of philosophical tools allows us to really open that up for a possibility, to really um, rethink whether or not, you know, a post-industrial revolution kind of um, schooling system is really what we need for um, the health and well-being and like the broad understanding of the term prosperity for now. So I'm picturing here some philosophers in residence or philosopher kings almost helping the policymakers to really think through these bigger questions almost. I mean, if we're yeah. allowing ourselves to dream, why not? Philosopher <laughs> why kings, not? Right? Ashley? Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's similar to to Lana. I'm I'm struggling with the bigness. It's it's funny because I always struggle with the bigness of this question. As much as I'm someone who I think does like to dream, I also struggle so much. Um, but I guess I'll answer the question by saying just like maybe three things that I think um, that I'd like love for my work to influence in terms of policy. Um, although. I don't know how directly that happens. Um, and I, I guess the first thing would be um, around, so think in terms of like sort of thinking spatially about things like special education and where special education happens. I mean, first of all, I don't think there should be special education. I think there should just be education. Um, that probably won't surprise anyone uh, for someone like me to think that. So I, I think we, I would love for uh, policy to move away from thinking about um labeled students as separate learners, uh, there is no reason that has to happen. It is a historical uh, consequence that we continue to retain for ableist reasons. Um, I would like for all educators to be able to teach all students, um, regardless of label and regardless of ability. I mean, those, those are some pretty I think in some ways, like those are like big dreams, but then they're also dreams that are actually happening. So there are schools that are preparing teachers, a lot of schools around where I work, um, universities who are preparing teachers to teach inclusively, which is to say to teach all learners. 
Um, but of course, there's also a lot of challenges for how that's supported in schools, right? Not all, not all teachers have access to things like um, co-teaching resources, um, which are really important for integrated co-teaching resources for, uh, in the United States context um, for, for, for supporting all learners. Um, and I guess the other thing that I would love to see is, I mean, a lot of shifts around how we think about punishment and especially shifts away from punishment. Um, I One of the things that really seems to blow my students' minds and I always find really fascinating is when I tell them that we can understand behavior as communication and then they're like, whoa, because it, it really, I think, challenges them to think about like, how is this kid's behavior actually telling me something? I mean, this is, of course, very resonant for Kara's work. Um, but but so a shift away from from punishment. And I'll thank Winston for Thompson for all his support and helping me think through that with the institute that he has um, going. So and then I guess the other thing would be um, thinking about who has access to the university. And so um, again, some really amazing work that um, people are doing uh, at different universities to create um, sustained and like established programs uh, for uh, students labeled with intellectual and developmental disabilities to matriculate into the college and take courses um, as a quote regular student, um, which is pretty awesome. Um, some folks down at Montclair um, in particular that I'm thinking of. So those are maybe some three areas that I would like my work to influence um, and hope, you know, cross fingers that that can happen. I'd love to just be able to add on because Ashley did such a nice job of giving such concrete uh, sorts of interventions. And I, I, I've been thinking as she was speaking, you know, about the kinds of uh, interruptions that I, I kind of hope for in my work um, and how it might be taken up, taken up in systems and policies. And I think that the underlying commonality is the interruption of the, of what constitutes success or a successful life or a successful student. Um, and, you know, you heard me talk about the sort of taken for grantedness of the neoliberal discourse. And so anytime that I can have some sort of intervention where I offer a different perspective on what perhaps might constitute success, whether it's, um, and, and how we support people in getting to those outcomes, you know, um, I think that that is really the goal for me. So I thank you, Ashley, for, for helping me sort of uh, think more concretely about it, because I think if I look at all of the different spaces where I work and all of the types of um interventions maybe that I do in the classroom or with my teacher candidates is really about problematizing the their inherent understandings of what it means to be successful and why school exists. You know, so, so thinking through um you know whether democratic participation is linked to our roles as consumers in society, for example, if there's alternative expressions for what it means to be a collective or a society. So things, I think things along those lines have been at the core of some of the more uh, concrete work. It's the benefit of going second. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask, uh, so we have a, a fourth and final question that we, uh, that we tend to ask, but I'm going to ask it in a little bit of a different way this time, partly uh, 
uh, driven by the the kinds of answers that you've given already. The question is essentially the same as the last one, but for practitioners. So like people who do not have control over policy mechanisms or do not have a large amount of power to make big structural change. And the question is, is something is always something like, what should they do? But uh, maybe a better way of asking that question is like, what have you seen people do uh, on the ground that uh, it, like classroom teachers, school personnel, uh, people that you can imagine, what have you, what kinds of practices have you uh, seen people engage in that sort of uh, push things in the direction that you would like to see it to go? Ashley, can I, can I start with you? Yeah. I mean, I'm worried I'm just going to repeat myself from before, yeah. but um, yeah, I guess, I mean, I, I, I think I've seen, I mean, I've seen some of the stuff that I described before okay. in action. So I can just, I mean, I can describe a little bit um, more about, let, let me see. I'll start with talking about the university sort of space, the, um, the kind of access. I've seen, I've seen my teacher candidates frameworks of understanding um, how learning unfolds in a, in the classroom context. So I'll tell an anecdote actually um, that I was thinking of before. So I had a um, I had a, one of this class this this classes that was integrated with um, uh, students who were labeled with intellectual disabilities and students who were not labeled with intellectual disabilities or who were understood as able minded, and um, they were working on group projects around uh, a social action project. So they had to sort of propose a social action at the university. And um, it was a group of four students, um, one of whom had a label, the other students did not. And um, one of the students with, who did not have a label came to talk to me about how they were struggling to help the person who had a label understand what they were trying to do. And I asked her to rethink how she was approaching that, that struggle because it positioned the, the labeled person as if, she needed to be told how to participate in this rather than being a central person in the, in the, in the project, right. Which was of course the, the point of the project. And I mean, I think the process of her grappling with that question and also the process of grappling with how do we restructure our approach to doing this group work um, so that we are actually being inclusive um, so that we actually are making a creating a space for this person to exercise her epistemic or knowledge agency. Um, and then I think the thing that came out of that was that, that was actually really important was that not only did the student question her approach and as a future teacher, that's really crucial, but I think also it made her realize how much, and I think this goes actually to a lot of what Lana was saying earlier, um, how much of her approach to thinking about group work was structured by a kind of like um, very, very narrow framework of productivity. So like I have X amount of time, I got to get this done. I got to get in touch with my group mates. I'm just going to take leadership. I'm going to just get this, like hammer this out. Right. Rather than slowing down and thinking about like the process. Right. Which I think for many of our students, especially our teacher candidates who are really in like that grind, um, that can be really important, but it's also like, they're going to be in that grind when they're in the school. So um, I, I hope that anecdote kind of illustrates some practical application. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Lana? Yeah, I think um, 
there's I, I've witnessed over the years a lot of what I would maybe characterize as acts of ethical subversion. <laughs> so, you know, teachers who are making space for the disruption of systemic inequities or injustices that they find and encounter and doing so in ways that often challenges them to change their practice or to be outliers in their um, institutional environment or culture. Uh, oftentimes, I think, sadly, it's, um, you know, sometimes teachers are able to find sort of little communities uh, for, like, for that kind of disruption, but oftentimes it is just, you know, sort of recognizing when there is an injustice happening in the classroom and using it as an opportunity. So, you know, it, it and it can really range, you know, I've, I've seen um, teachers adjust their practice over time so that there's less emphasis on competition and more of uh, an attempt to take in place of competition to take an approach of collective and community care um, and really working on their language in the classroom and how they structure what it means for students to be successful. So I think something, I don't want to say as small as that because that's not a small thing at all, but I see that as being a d direct challenge to the taken for grantedness of, you know, sort of the, like I said, the neoliberal idea of competition and individualism. A, a small shift like that can, um, can, allow students to see that success can be found in alternative ways rather than through their grades and competition. I think also, you know, I've seen teachers make it a point to pay attention to underrepresented voices increasingly in ways that aren't colonizing or condescending. I think that there's been a lot of growth in awareness of how to do good responsive pedagogy uh, that implicates the teacher as a listener. Uh, and I've seen more teachers being willing to shift the lens from being the person who has the hierarchical power in the classroom to being more vulnerable in their own practice, um, which I think is at the heart of, you know, some of the kind of um, ethic of care or responsibility that, I mean, so it's hard because these are not, you know, concrete examples. They're more uh, affective, or dispositions uh, that teachers assume over time, but they assume them, I think, often as a result of these kinds of uh, awakenings or disruptive conversations that they may encounter themselves, whether it's in their graduate study or a professional development session or reading something that they find impactful. So I think it's it's about that kind of dispositional shift or openness um, that that I see it. Awesome. Thank you. It's really very exciting to hear both of you talk. And I'm thinking in our last episode, Dr. David Stovall talks about, he's quoting somebody else, and I don't have the reference right now, but abolition as a, as a creation. And I'm hearing both of you also speak in the ways that you're de deconstructing frames and you're deconstructing words as a kind of shifting the narrative um, and taking apart in the spirit of not taking apart to take down, but taking apart to put something new and more powerful and more equitable forward. Um, so that's really exciting and powerful to hear. And I also really 
so appreciate the ways that you both move so fluently between what it is philosophically that you're doing and then what it is that you're doing in your day-to-day practice, whether it's with undergraduates or whether it's with teachers in the field. Um, That's really inspiring and exciting to hear. So thank you so much for being on and for your insights today. Thank you. This was wonderful. Yeah, I agree. I really appreciate being invited into the conversation. And I have to say that I think that one of my struggles is personally trying to find coherence between the things that I write about and think about and endeavor to try and um, live up to some of those things as, as a teacher in my own classroom. Uh, so it's, it's lovely to have an opportunity to just talk about this and to um, be forced to kind of articulate, you know, where the rubber meets the road in a way here. So thank you. And that is our show. Thanks so much to Lana and Ashley for taking the time to speak with us today about the excellent work that they do. And for more, see the links to their stuff in the show notes. Please subscribe to the show if you have not done so already, and leave us a rating and review, which makes us more visible within the general potosphere. To get in touch with us directly with follow-ups or comments or questions, send us an email at thinkinginthemidst at gmail.com. Our next episode will be available in a week, and it features Amy Shuffleton and Kathleen Knight-Abowitz talking about schools and parents generally, as well as, well, in the midst of the current parental rights climate. Until then, and for Kara Furman too, this is Thinking in the Midst. I'm Derek Gottlieb, and we will see you next time.